Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Aaron Jones, bringing you the best nonpartisan information that you need to know. Welcome back to the Need to Know podcast. As you know, we have been doing some talks with authors over the last several episodes. It's summer reading time here in August, and we have at the Wilson Center, Abraham Denmark, who is the director of the Asia Program, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for East Asia at the Defense Department, who has written a book, U.S. Strategy in the Asian Century, Empowering Allies and Partners. Welcome back to the show, Abe. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Here you are at this sort of, I think, seems like a pivotal moment in U.S.-Asia relations, uh, you know, as we're going to be coming out of this coronavirus world and talking about China a lot more. So it seems like you're just in the right place at the right time, hold, handing us this book to read. Yeah, you know, I started this book uh, far too long ago, far too long than I care to admit, um, looking at uh, empowering our allies, a strategy to get our allies to do more. And I, I started asking myself some questions, some, some more fundamental questions about why do we want our allies to do more, to what ends. And the challenge, though, is that the world kept changing. Um, primarily, I went into government for uh, almost two years uh, into the Pentagon. And when I came out, um, that changed my views, that experiences. But then I also... Uh, uh, had to change the book again with the Trump administration, which forced us to all look at some more uh, fundamental questions about the role of our alliances. So it took a while for me to make sure that the book was exactly what I wanted to say. Um, but finally, it's out. And I think uh, with the coronavirus, it's really highlighted that these issues are very important. Well, and I think to just kind of going with that, in the Trump administration, we've had to reevaluate some fundamental questions. He is a president who obviously views the world differently. And that's really what he came to office saying that he was going to do. Um, we have a different approach to Asia. We've had, you know, you can go back, you know, in podcasts that we did back in January about our trade relationships. So much of that was related to Asia. And in the Obama administration, we were supposed to be doing a pivot to Asia. So this is something that's been kind of knocking around American policy circles for quite a while. Sure, sure. And um, even before the Obama administration, the uh, George W. Bush administration was also trying to uh, expand and strengthen our our posture and our policy in Asia. The, the calculus uh, is clear to any administration that Asia is increasingly important that Asia is going to be critical to the geopolitics of this century. That's why I, in the title of the book, I call it the Asian century. Um, that the logic of that is really inescapable. The question though is, what are we going to do about it? And the, what you referenced, the, the questions that President Trump was asking, uh, has been asking about the, uh, the role of our alliances, the value of those alliances. I think are very actually quite helpful for to force uh, experts who sometimes take these issues to, for granted to take a step back and really think through what are we actually trying to accomplish with these alliances? What is what is their purpose? Um, I think the concerns that I have and that many others have is not that the president asked these questions. I think my concern at least has been the answers that he came up with were very different from 
um, my understanding of what's in America's interest and how to move forward in terms of asserting American interests and values uh, in our foreign affairs. So I guess kind of thinking about how the current president thinks about these things, you know, when you say U.S. strategy in the Asian century, why is it the Asian century and not another U.S. century? If the 20th century was really an era of the U.S., you know, winning two world wars and becoming, you know, the policeman of the world, why can't we have another one? Why is this an Asian century? Well, I think that they're not, they're not necessarily um, mutually exclusive in that the U.S. has always had profound interests in Asia. But if you look at the uh, shifts in international um, economic power, military power, broadly speaking, that year after year for a few decades now, there's been a steady shift of that power to Asia. And it looks like with the coronavirus, um, and I'll get to this theme in a bit later, uh, hopefully, um, this trend has accelerated. Um, so it's not the fact that the United States is not an important player anymore. Uh, I think the United States is still the critical player uh, in the world and especially in Asia. Uh, but the balance of international power has been shifting, and I expect will continue to shift from the West uh, into Asia. And that has profound implications for American strategy um, and the way that power is being wielded, the way it's changing, the way the balance of power is changing has very important implications for American foreign policy. And that's what my book is trying to highlight. So when you say that it's shifting to Asia, do you primarily mean China or are there other parts of the continent that you see as being centers of this economic power? Yeah, I, I very specifically um, titled the book uh, as The Asian Century and not The Chinese Century because I don't think it's going to be The Chinese Century. Um, if you look at since the end of the Second World War, um, the United States established an, an international order. And by order, I mean, uh, broadly speaking, the rules of the road, the operating system that allows the region to function. Uh, the U.S. established this order in a very liberal way, and that it's based on an international laws, norms, institutions, and backed up by American, uh, American power and American leadership. And that liberal system really enabled uh, Asian powers to rise uh, since the end of the war. Uh, first countries like Japan and Korea, uh, then countries in the Asian tigers in Southeast Asia, and more recently, China and India. Um, the, uh, so the rise of Asia is a much broader story than the rise of China, but, uh, China does represent something different in that its, uh, potential power is much greater than that of, uh, the other Asian powers, uh, but also its orientation towards the international system, uh, and the ideology of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, means that it represents a, a challenge, uh, both to, uh, the United States, uh, but also to the foundations of that liberal order itself. Um, so um, to me, it's definitely an Asian century rather than a Chinese century, but China is going to be a very important, uh, very important player in uh, the future geopolitics of the region and the world. 
And the United States needs to have a better understanding both of what China is attempting to accomplish, uh, but also how we can tailor our strategy to more effectively compete uh, with China. That's an interest. I think that is an interesting and, and a, a good broad approach because if you really think about the, I mean, you've got you know, a billion people in China, a billion people in India, Japan. It, it is a, it, it is a wide constellation um, of interest there, and there's going to be competition within those players too. It's not just going to be the United States versus fill in the blank. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, I see us as being at a crossroads, that the U.S. is at a crossroads in terms of its strategy towards Asia. Um, questions about American leadership are intensifying. Um, can the United States lead? Will you the United States lead? And the argument of the book has, is that we can't rely on the, the strategies and framework of the that we used uh, after the Second World War, after the end of the... Uh, after the end of the Cold War, uh, because power has changed, uh, the balance of power in Asia has changed. Uh, we need a um, post post war strategy, a post coronavirus strategy, if you will, uh, that takes into account these changes to the balances of power, takes into account the views of our allies and partners more more um, fundamentally, and tailors an American strategy that enhances our power and our leadership in the region to maintain and revise a liberal order that's more effective uh, for the 21st century. And that's probably easier said than done though, right? Oh, definitely. Um, I, as someone who's worked in uh, the Pentagon a few times in both the Bush administration and the Obama administration, um, it's much easier said than done. But this is these are the sorts of uh, organizations, the Wilson Center especially, uh, need to develop this sort of intellectual capital that governments don't, government officials don't have the time or the bandwidth to be able to formulate these um, broad frameworks of ideas. And they rely on outside experts to come up with ideas um, that are sound academically, um, and, but also have some practical applications. So uh, this book I tried to, to accomplish both. There's academic pieces in it, uh, but also the, really the second half of the book is a comprehensive review of country by country of uh, U.S. allies and partners of what specifically the United States can do with these countries in order to advance the broader framework that the book develops of empowering our allies and partners in order to support a stronger, more resilient, uh, liberal international order and more effectively compete with China. You know, as our audience, we have a lot of congressional staffers who tell me that they listen to this. They're obviously looking at the policy and they're looking for good ideas and their bosses are looking for ways that they can counter a rising China and this whole new order and how the United States remains at the top. Right. Um, but fundamentally, at the constituent level, how do you communicate that this is a change, this is a pivot point, right? That this, it felt like President Obama tried to do this with TPP and with, uh, you know, a pivot to Asia, but you got to feel like you're at sort of a turning point in history, right? Post-World War II, post-Cold War, in order to seem to have some kind of big, grand, world-order-changing strategy. 
How do you explain that at the constituent level who may not, you know, be reading an academic, you know, treatise on this, but is trying to understand from their elected representative's point of view how to lead the United States? Sure. We still lack the domestic political framework that supported the Cold War. Um, and despite what some may say, uh, China does not represent the same kind of challenge as the Soviet Union did. Um, and our competition with China is not the same as our competition with the Soviet Union. In some ways, it's much more complex and, and uh, difficult. Um, but there's not going to be this um, broad um, narrative of us against this evil empire on the other side of the world because China is already integrated into the same system as us. Uh, so to me, the domestic political argument, there's several pieces to it. But one piece is that broadly speaking, Asia is a critical market for American goods, uh, for American services, that any industry that you can think of that's important to the United States, be it IT, be it uh, science, manufacturing, uh, agriculture, anything is deeply touched and deeply affected by what's happening in Asia. Um, and so when we think about uh, trade and investment and uh, the balance of power in Asia, um, it's a mistake to see the United States as disengaged from this region. We are a part of the region. Their economy is fundamentally intertwined with ours. And if we want to sustain American leadership around the world, if we want to sustain uh, our own economic growth, if we want to make sure that our goods get to the right markets, get to the right people, have the access that we want, it means remaining fundamentally engaged with the most critical region of the world. Um, the United States, especially since the end of the Second World War, but really since the end of the, uh, towards the end of the 19th century, has seen its fate as being intertwined with uh, the rest of the world. And so to me, the fate of the world, the fate of the international economy, the fate of the global balance of power is increasingly tilting towards Asia. And we need to be a part of that story if we're going to influence it, affect it, and make sure that it's shaped in a way that's conducive to our interests, to our markets, and, and to our businesses. Yeah, that's pretty interesting when you talk about the dynamics between the U.S. and the USSR during the Cold War. You try to overlay that onto U.S.-China competition, it breaks down in a lot of areas. It, it really does. And that's, that's pretty interesting. You mentioned something that caught my attention there. China is part of this same international order that we are. And tell, expand on that a little bit more. That, you know, they're integrated into the, into the system. That's right. Um, during the Cold War, there was basically zero trade between uh, the United States and the Soviet Union. There's a little bit here and there, but basically nothing. Um, whereas with uh, China and the United States, we are huge trade partners. Um, we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, and so they're part of, they're integrated into the same system as the United States. That's why decoupling, uh, which uh, some of your audience may have been hearing about over the last few years, is so, is so uh, critically interesting because it uh, strikes at the heart of that of that uh, difference, that we're part of the same system. Now, some folks will argue, um, and I think Secretary of State Pompeo made this argument 
in a speech about China recently that China has global ambitions seeking to make the Chinese Communist Party the dominant force in the world. Um, and I just don't see that. Um, hmm. To me, uh, China is not the revisionist power that it was in the 1950s, 1960s. Uh, it's not exporting uh, Maoist insurgencies around the world. Um, it's part of the UN. It's part of the WTO. It's part of all these international institutions. Uh, but it is revisionist locally in that it is trying to change the rules of the road in the region. It is trying to establish itself as the dominant power in the region. Um, but more broadly, I see itself, I, I see China as uh, seeing itself as um, what I call in the book, uh, China sees itself as an exceptional power. And I use that word very specifically in that it's different than what we talk about American exceptionalism. Um, American exceptionalism is generally based on the idea that the United States is a special country um, because of our history, because of what we represent, because of our values, um, and because of our role of leading the world. Whereas for China, it's much more based on a, a civilizational exceptionalism, that China has a rightful place at top of a global, uh, a global hierarchy because of its uh, innate history, its innate nature of superiority. Um, so what I see China trying to do in terms of international laws, institutions, and norms uh, is to carve out exceptions for itself, um, for when it finds those laws, institutions, and norms to be counter to the interests of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and you see that in a lot of different examples. I'll use um, international freedom of navigation on the high seas as an example, where you'll see U.S. ships sailing close to Chinese-claimed uh, islands and features in the South China Sea, uh, and China raises strenuous objections, yet when Chinese ships do similar sails through Japan, uh, near the uh, Aleutian Islands in Alaska, um, it's no problem because it's based on international law. So when you talk to Chinese officials about this, they'll say, we completely support international freedom of navigation on the high seas, but the South China Sea is ours and you really shouldn't do that. Hmm. To me, that repeated over and over again in a wide variety of different areas of supporting the established law broadly, broadly speaking, but wanting to carve out exceptions for itself. And so what I see is that it's China's not trying to revolutionize the international system. China's trying to make the world safe for the Chinese Communist Party. They're trying to work. They're trying to work the system. They're trying to make the system more reflective of the very specific interests of the party. Um, but beyond that, uh, they're more than happy to free ride and allow these institutions to go on with a few adjustments here and there. Making the system work for them. Some would argue that the United States has done the same thing, right? To make the system work for them and create it in their own image. Well, sure. It's one of the fascinating things about the liberal order is that um, it's uh, self-limiting in that um, we established a system of laws and institutions and norms that then sought to restrict uh, restrict American uh, decision space uh, to the chagrin of many American officials. Um, but what's interesting is going back 10, 15 years, in my conversations with uh, Chinese officials especially, uh, they would often be sort of mystified that the United States would hold itself to international laws and norms, even though it was the dominant power in the world. There was nobody stopping us from doing this other than our commitment to the system. And so in, in some ways, we're 
in some ways, we bucked that system. Um, certainly, we're not perfect in terms of following international laws and norms. Uh, but broadly speaking, establishing these, this system and being, and following it was a tremendous boon to American power, um, because it made our uh, engagement with the United States more attractive for these countries. That those laws were in their interests. Um, those rules were in their interests. Um, and so the United States was seen as, uh, engaging with the United States, I should say, was seen as uh, conducive to advancing uh, their own interests, their stability, and their prosperity. Uh, whereas China uh, is really primarily out for themselves. Um, and the, uh, another example of this is when you're looking at overseas basing. Uh, the United States has military bases all over the world, and those forces provide public goods in terms of protecting sea lanes of communication, uh, fighting terrorism, uh, drug interdiction, these sorts of things. Whereas when China looks at uh, establishing overseas facilities like the one they established in Djibouti, it's entirely and specifically designed to and intended to protect Chinese shipping, Chinese people, Chinese uh, organizations in the region. There's no uh, impetus for providing public goods um, providing regional stability. They're in it for themselves. They're very clear about that. And to me, that's one of the critical reasons why uh, we're not going to be looking at a Chinese century because nobody's really interested in supporting Chinese leadership. Well, that sounds like a good place to, to wrap this up. This is, I, I could go on probably for another hour discussing this and asking you questions about what you've written here. Uh, U.S. Strategy in the Asian Century, a new book out this week from Abraham Denmark, who is the director of the Asia program at the Wilson Center. So go out and get it. It's out from the Columbia University Press. Abe, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this. Hey, thanks, Aaron. I really appreciate it. 